Christmas to all of you again. And now the word of God from uh, Luke chapter 2. I'll be reading just as verses 9 through 11 to begin with this morning. Give your attention to the reading, uh, to the preaching. Let God uh, use this time to bless you in this Christmas season as you hear his word again. Chapter 2 of Luke, verses 9 through 11, these are the words of God. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, let your glory shine now upon this text the reading and preaching of your word, and the hearing and applying of it as well. Open our hearts and minds, even now, to the glory of your truth, of the reign of your Son over all things this day, and all to the praise of your gracious glory, for it is gracious. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, only a day late, but we got a white Christmas. Beautiful. It is beautiful. How was your Christmas? And for those of you, I know some of you make a point of celebrating the 12 days of Christmas. How is your Christmas going? (laughs) Well, it's getting colder and whiter, isn't it? It's wonderful. You know, no matter how sweet your Christmas, no matter how robust you're celebrating, no matter how deeply meaningful and spiritual your meditations on the Incarnation were and are, No matter how many games and gifts, how much feasting and festivities, how many carols and cards and carbs you have absorbed, you didn't come close. You did not come close to experiencing the pleasure over the story of Christmas that God had and has. As we commune with our Lord, would it not be proper to ask Him, Father, how was your Christmas? How was your Christmas? We so are, we're so self-centered. We, ask, we at least ask one another, how was your Christmas? How was God's Christmas? How is God's reflection and meditation over the incarnation? And what might we learn from his celebration, from his pleasure, the pleasure of God in Christmas? The text, uh, I think, gives us a little bit of an indication, and then I want to take us to some other places, too, of what's going on in heaven when it comes to reflections on the incarnation and the plan of God. There is a, the, the story is that an angel appears to these shepherds. And this angel um, is a messenger. In fact, the word angel or angelos in the Greek simply means messenger. Now, when this angel appears, we know it's not, uh, not just any messenger. This is the angel of the Lord. And whenever the angel of the Lord shows up in, throughout the scriptures, people are terrified. Like they fall down thinking that they're going to die or are dead already. It's not a pleasant little cherubim, you know, fat little thing with some wings sitting on it that makes everybody just feel really sweet and comfortable. Rather, something terrifying is happening. A, a, an awesome proclamation is about to be made. But nevertheless, the word also just means messenger. Angelos means messenger. In, the, in, the, in the Mark chapter 1, verse 2, we, we are told that John the Baptist came as an angel of the Lord, as a messenger of the Lord. It's the same word. 
We just translate it. Context requires us to translate it so we're not thinking of him as a cherubim. But he's a messenger. An angel is a messenger, one who brings a message. And the pastors, the, the, uh, or I'm sorry, the angels in the seven churches in Revelation are probably pastors or the great overseers of the, sit, of the churches in that city that, that um, John is, or Jesus is speaking to through John. These are messengers. They are messengers who have a message from the Lord. And so the message from the Lord is important because it's, it's, not, it's not so much what the angel thinks about it, but what the Lord thinks about what, he's, what he is saying. The message revealed the Lord's view of the birth of the Messiah, his son. The angel says, don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. This terrifying angel says, don't be afraid. Because I bring you tidings of great joy. And again, it's not just the angel saying this. He is, he's revealing a message. He's bringing the message of God to these shepherds and then, of course, to all of us as well. And um, so they're told to be overwhelmed with joy. And by the time they get the message and go and see um, the, the babe in the manger, they return. Look at verse 20. If you look ahead, then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. It was all confirmed. And so they join in the great praising and rejoicing that the angel says God is doing as well. What we learn in the Gospels is not simply that we receive this gift of a little boy, but rather that this little boy is, is the, the, the gift of this little boy or the sign of this little, that this little boy is, is that we are being given a gift, a gift of the very kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus will say later on in Luke chapter 12, 32, he will say that this kingdom is it is, it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He says to this little flock, he says in, in Luke 12, 32, do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is the Father's good pleasure. This is the great news that the Father has such pleasure to announce. Um, when it says, I bring you tidings of great joy, a, a, a strict literal interpretation or translation would be, I evangelize to you. I evangelize to you great joy. It's where we get the word good news. Um, and so it's a, th this idea that this good news is, is supposed to do something to you. It's supposed to convert you. It's supposed to change the way that you see the world. It's supposed to change the way you see your own life. I evangelize to you great joy. What is about to be said then is the gospel, the good news. And its declaration is not simply just to make you happy, it's to change you forever from the inside. It is the great joy of God being placed in you in everlasting communion with him. And when a sinner comes to Christ, the angels in heaven find themselves in the presence of great joy. Uh, in uh, Luke 15, in the stories of the lost sheep and the lost coin and then of the lost son. In those stories, um, when the lost sheep and the lost coin are, are found, it, it, it says at the end of those stories, um, Jesus records, likewise I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels over, of God over one sinner who repents. And now listen to that again. He doesn't say there's, there's joy from the angels. He says, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Who's, whose presence are the angels in? 
the angels are seeing the joy of the Father when one sinner repents. And then, then they go on to the story of the lost son. Jesus goes on to the story of the lost son, where you see the father expectantly waiting for the prodigal to return. The father rejoices over the return of one lost sheep, one lost coin, one lost son. The father rejoices. This is the pleasure of God in Christmas. This is the pleasure of God in his story of the incarnation of what's taking place. This is God's good pleasure. So come and behold the pleasure of God. How was your Christmas? How is God's Christmas? How is God's story and plan and experience of his work of sending his son for you and for the world? What is his expectation? Well, come and behold the pleasure of God. He predestined this whole event, choosing us in him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, it says, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his gracious glory. God wants to bring glory to his name. He wants to reveal the graciousness of his glory. In fact, listen to um, Ephesians 1. I want to read all of 4, four through 6. Actually, I'd like to read, oh, no, just 4 through 6. That's what I'll read. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So that's, that means um, this Christmas, or the very, the very first Christmas, the incarnation, is planned out before the foundation of the world and all that's going to take place. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. And then, and then Paul writes, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of, his, uh, glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. This is God's good pleasure. This is his plan. Something planned before the foundation of everything that he creates. Something that he takes great pleasure in. Now, it's not just, it's not just the father that takes pleasure in it. We also see the pleasure of the son in his participation in this, in his acting out this, the, the Father's will, in, in being the one who is sent. Jesus uses the same word um, as the angel, evangelize, as he quotes Isaiah 61 in Luke chapter 4. In fact, just turn a couple verses, a couple chapters over here. Luke chapter 4, and uh, I'm going to begin in verse 16. So this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, early on in his ministry. And it says he came to Nazareth, in verse 16, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. When he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach gospel, the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. When he quotes that, when he's quoting Isaiah, um, at least in the Greek here, this word gospel is the same evangelized word. This is a, the word used, euangelion, uh, uh, meaning the good news. So the good tidings that were shouted out at the birth of Christ are the good news that Jesus is now preaching. They're connected. They're the, they're the same thing or the working out of the same thing. Luke records then, then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
You see it in verse uh, 21, it says, and he began to say to them, I believe that what Jesus did, because this is what would happen with the teachers in the synagogue, they would have this, the, this reading to give, and then after giving that reading, then they would expound it. They would expound upon it, just as a, as a preacher would do. And so Jesus began to explain to them what this meant. Well, this comes from Isaiah chapter 61. And if, 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 you, if you went there, we don't have to go there. I just want to point out in, in, in chapter 61, as he goes out, we find that those, um, what, he, what he says here is that those who once had shame now have double honor. Those, they now have everlasting joy upon themselves, Isaiah 61, 7. And then the speaker in, in, in Isaiah 61, who is Christ, because he's the one now expounding, says that he will greatly rejoice in the Lord. Listen to the end of Isaiah chapter 61. So this is the prophet who began by saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And Jesus closes the book and he says, this is being fulfilled in your day. And I would imagine he expounds the rest of that chapter, just seven verses. And he says, he would have explained this. Listen, listen to this as the words of Jesus. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud, and as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations." Well, this would be, of course, talking about Israel being brought back. But Jesus, who's the head of that new Israel, is speaking of the, sal the garments of salvation that are on him to bring to, to, bring to all the world, the, the work that he's about to do. And he would have explained that. Back in, uh, uh, in, in Luke 2 then, again, verses 10 and 11, the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you, evangelize you, I evangelize to you words of great joy which will be to all people. So what is this? And here's the declaration. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And it's, the God, it's God's good pleasure and the Son's good pleasure. Consider the good news then here. This baby was born in the city of David. Well, God had promised that from this little town of Bethlehem, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting would come forth. Micah 5.2. Before the foundation of the world, God has, has determined all things that are going to come to pass. He's determined that a Savior is going to be born in a particular city. It's going to be a little town. It's, it's going to be set aside, even though it's not far from Jerusalem. It's a, it's a, it's a minor little, little town. But that's where, that's where David came from, and the offspring of David is going to come from there as well. And the promises that had been given to the son of David would be given to this special one. It, well, it's amazing to think, if you, if you stop and think about this for a moment, how is it that, that Mary ends up in Bethlehem? That's not where she's, that's not where she's living. But she's brought there because the king of the world the emperor of the known world, the most powerful man on the face of the earth, made a, de a decree that now a census was going to be taken. And actually in the authorized version, um, it says that they were going to, there was going to be a tax. You're going to be taxed. And so you needed to go, and basically you had to go, and you had to write down where you were originally from, where you were now living, what your income was, and where you were going to be paying your taxes. Sound familiar? Right? So, 
So the most powerful man on the face of the earth is the one who makes sure that Joseph and Mary are in Bethlehem when Jesus is born. What should you see there? You should see there Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Do you know that there's, in one, in one sense, there's no way to get out of God's will? <laughs> out of his decreed will? You can, you can love him and follow him and, and be used by him with great, for great blessing. But you can, you can walk away, you can rebel against him, and he is not up in heaven going, oh my goodness, now what am I going to do? He, he, and, and he's not just reacting to what's going on. He, he is in the business of acting within his decreed will in all of us, in and through all of us, in and through um, Augustus Caesar, who is declared to be the savior of the world, who has his image on the back of a coin, for taxing purposes, that says, Caesar is Lord. And God says, I want you to set up a census because I need to shuffle people around a bit. I need to get Joseph and Mary into Bethlehem to overthrow you. To overthrow the city of man. In this city of David, a son is born, one to whom was promised an everlasting kingdom. In 2 Samuel, David is promised by the Lord, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And of course, we see Solomon fulfill this in part. Solomon is raised up, and Solomon does build a temple. And a kingdom is established, but it's far from perfect. Solomon is far from perfect. But Solomon was just a picture. Solomon was just an illustration, a live illustration of what God actually was doing and what he had great pleasure in doing. 2 Samuel 7, 16 says, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your, your throne shall be established forever. This was the promise that was going to be given to this one. So when we, we hear um, the, the good news. There's born to you in this, city, uh, in this day, in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 2 Samuel and the promises there should be uh, resonating in all who hear it. Turn back to Luke chapter 1, verse 30. And here are the words of the angel to Mary. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary would have heard those words, and he, she would know the promises that had been given to David about a son, and the connections would be there. He will be the promised Savior. Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. And he is Christ, that is the anointed one, the Messiah who is promised. And he is the Lord, Emmanuel, God with us. And we can see through the, by the use of, his word, of the word Lord here, um, when it says that, that uh, in, 
uh, is born this day to you in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Um, the word Lord sometimes can just mean master, but in the context here throughout these chapters in Luke, every time the word Lord is used here, it's referring to Yahweh. It's referring to God. It, it, you are seeing the declaration of the birth of, of a Savior who is Christ, Yahweh, who is Messiah, the Lord. Christ's full divinity is actually, is actually being proclaimed even right there. Paul would say later in Romans 10, 13, that anyone who calls in the name of Yahweh, well, he says Lord in the Greek, but he's, he's uh, quoting from the Old Testament. Anyone who calls in the name of Yahweh will be saved. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. Now, The faithful here have come to church. <laughs> so you probably already all know this, don't you? You probably already know this, but here's my question for you. I, I, I want to I go back through that for two reasons. First of all, I want, you, I want us to stop thinking about ourselves for a moment and, and wonder how much God is rejoicing. How much God rejoices and finds pleasure in this His plan. Even at this moment, even at this point of, of time right here, are you pondering at all this in the same kind of way that Mary pondered in her heart? She would have heard, she heard these words. You call his name Jesus, and he'll save his people from their sins. Because God predestined this, pondered it over and over through the prophets, celebrated it as it happened, and has been declaring it with great joy through his messengers ever since, shouldn't we join along with that? Shouldn't we find ourselves being able to be en kind of enveloped into that joy which is his? How is Christmas for you, Father? How is Christmas and the story of the salvation of the world for you, God? Well, God does so. He rejoices, knowing better than we do, and knowing better than we do all the trials that were still before his son, and all of the trials that would befall all of his people. Because what is it that distracts you from entering into the joy of the Lord? What is it that distracts you from being caught up in unending rejoicing? Well, isn't it our sufferings and trials? And isn't the questions that come in the midst of our sufferings and trials? Isn't it the distractions of our own sins and lusts and then the consequences of falling into those things that keep us from being in the joy of the Lord? There are, and yet, see, what you need to understand is none of that surprises God. None of that surprises God who in his being, Father, Son, and Spirit, is rejoicing over the story of Christmas, rejoicing over the incarnation, incarnation, rejoicing in that day that his son is born of the flesh and born of the Virgin Mary and is going to lead a life leading to a horrible, horrible death. And it doesn't stop the father's rejoicing. I want to take you to two passages. And see if we can unpack that a little bit more. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. 
course, this is the passage that speaks of the of the pain and the suffering that would be brought upon the Son of God. Verse 4, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. God knew. God knew exactly where this little child, his son, was going to end up, impaled on a cross. But God... Here's what, here's what you need to remember. God did not shed a tear from heaven when Jesus died on the cross. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. It pleased the Lord to bruise him, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Hebrews 12, we are told that Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, has endured the cross. Why? Because the labor of the servant on the cross satisfied the wrath of God and provided the only way of reconciliation for man. John 1.29 is where, of course, John the Baptist declares, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then John writes in his epistle, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Well, you know that too, don't you? Because you know the gospel and you know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And you know that if you confess your sins, you'll be forgiven because of the blood of Christ that's been shed for you. You already know that, don't you? But do you take pleasure in it? Do you take pleasure in it with the Father? Why is that so pleasing? Why is that so good? The oppression of the cross was the will of God. The oppression of the cross was the will of God and accomplished the will of God. And again, we see here where the acts of men, of sinful, evil men, wanting to stop God, wanting to stop Jesus, wanting to stop this growing influence of some kind of weird way going on. Out of envy, we are told, they crucify him. Luke writes in Acts chapter 4, for truly, uh, quoting the... Uh, the, the um, disciples, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. What, what they're praising God for is for Herod and Pilate to conspire to kill their leader. Not just for Herod and Pilate, but for Herod and Pilate representing the Jews and all of the Gentiles conspiring together to hate 
<laughs> to hate and murder their leader. Why? Because it was exactly what your purpose determined before to be done. And, and as they pray that in Acts chapter 4, it says, that the, it says that the house and the area shook and there was great joy and fear and trembling. I, seeing what God is doing, understanding what God did in Christ, understanding in the midst of the great suffering and trials, persecution, and the death of Christ, how much glory God is doing in and through that. How happy he is because of all that it is bringing forth is something we are invited to walk with and in. And, I, and part of the reason I know that you are invited to walk in it is because we as his servants also walk in sufferings and trials and sorrows. It is our lot as well. So to turn with me just to one, one more passage as well, to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And everyone said, Amen. But Peter doesn't stop. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. He writes to the dispersed um, church who, in the midst of persecution, is, is all over uh, Asia, all over the Asia. They're in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and uh, Bithynia. And, and they are, so they're, they're not homeless, but they've been, they've been moved because of the persecution and little enclaves, little churches all over. And Peter's writing to them in the midst of their trials and sufferings, and he's saying, isn't God wonderful? Isn't it wonderful what he's promised you and where you're going? In this, he says, you greatly rejoice even though you got kicked out of your homes and kicked out of your cities and saw some of your brothers killed and other people lose their jobs and, and, and because you're following the name of Jesus, you're getting trounced. Isn't it wonderful? <laughs> In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. We are able... And commanded, in fact, sometimes this verse, it's hard. It can be translated, a statement of fact, in this you greatly rejoice. It actually can be translated, greatly rejoice. It can be translated as a command. Like Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Or James 1, who tells us to count it all joy when you go through various trials and tribulations. So we're able and commanded to greatly rejoice while grieved with various trials. And I think Christmas and understanding how God rejoices in the incarnation is how we are instructed and empowered by his spirit to do so. 
He tells us in verse 7 that this is because your faith is being tested by the fire of those afflictions to a greater glory. Look at verse 7. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Two things there. He says that your faith, your precious faith that he has for you, is better than all of the world's riches. Which, which would mean also all the world, knowledge, power, prestige. Imagine anything that you think would make life perfect. He says, none of it compares to your faith, to your precious faith. And God is throwing that precious faith into a fire. And he's throwing that into a fire that it might be made more rich, more pure. If you had gold, it was, and it was full of dross, but it's your gold... And I throw it in fire, and it's burning in that fire. But because it's burning in that fire, it's going to be now more valuable when I take it out. Would you tell me to take it out of the fire or keep it there? Well, that's what he says he's doing with your faith. He's throwing it in a fire. We don't like fires. We don't like to be thrown in fires. But he says, the Lord says, but you're my gold. You're my gold. And I want you more precious. I want you more pure. I want you more valuable. So I'm throwing your faith in the fire to make you more precious. As your faith is well tested, you're refined in order to believe even more what you cannot see. Verse 8. Whom having not seen, the revelation of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed here years after Christ has now departed. So Paul writes to these believers, you haven't seen Jesus, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so your faith is tested in order that you might believe even more in the things that you cannot see which is really important because there's so much we cannot see in the midst of those trials and tribulations and sorrows and sufferings. We can't see where it's going. It's around the corner of our finite abilities. Whatever the trial is, whatever the temptation, whatever the sorrow is, you can't see where it's taking you. That's what faith is. That's what faith requires. But you can apparently have inexpressible joy in the midst of it if you can see with eyes of faith, not around the corner, see what happens. He's not going to tell you. But you can see Jesus in the preaching of the gospel, in the declaration of his death, burial, and resurrection, in, in being able to see what happened in his suffering and trials, which were the greatest suffering and trials. So, Hebrews... 11.1, my own translation here, faith is the realization of things hoped for, the confidence of things not seen. That's what faith is. Faith is the realization of everything you could have hoped for. Anything that he says no to the things that you hope for, he only says no in terms of eternity because he says, we're setting that aside. What I have, you want so much more. Faith is the realization of things hoped for and the confidence, the confidence of things not seen. 
So you cannot see what it is that the Father is taking such pleasure in. We cannot see everything that God is so excited about. He is so happy at Christmas. He is so pleased in the story of the incarnation and where it's going. He is so confident in what he has done to this earth, to this world, through his son. And if he has granted you faith, he is so confident of what he is doing and what he will accomplish in you. And it gives him great pleasure in the midst of the fire. And you are invited. That's why we celebrate Christmas when things aren't all going right. That's why we'll celebrate Easter when things aren't all going right. We don't wait for all things to go right before we rejoice. Because we rejoice by faith. We rejoice when we can't see. That's what God is teaching us. You cannot see what the Father is taking such pleasure in. Paul will write in 1 Corinthians, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Story of the incarnation, along with the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of the Son, these are but the pillars, the foundation of what his pleasure is built upon. The foundation of all that he has for his son and for those who are in his son. Is there an ongoing celebration of the incarnation in heaven? How pleased is the father with Christmas? The pleasure of God in Christmas in his son, in bruising his son, in giving you to his son, in glorifying his son and all those in his son. His pleasure is eternal, immeasurable, infinite, powerful, and full of great joy. Good tidings of great joy. Amen. Glory to you, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Glory to you, Most High, for you are indeed worthy to receive all glory, power, and honor. Let your majesty rule in our hearts. Protect us in our temptations. Comfort us in our sorrows with eternal joy right in the midst of those sufferings. Do this to the praise of your holy name. Amen. Let's turn to page 200.